0: asked to preach on uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, you can read along. Some of the verses will be up here on the screen. 2 Samuel 24, it, uh, it raises some questions, and so we're going to go ahead and tackle some of those questions. Uh, I want you to be ready to engage your mind this morning, because these are probably questions that each of you have wrestled with. And... Uh, And we're going to wrestle with these a little and then, uh, as we go through the story, come to a deeper and more fuller understanding of God and how he works in our lives. Uh, So if you would think with me, I want you to think about a time when you screwed up, like you sinned, and that moment after the sin, when you realize that you sinned, Right? You, you, you did something, and you know you shouldn't have, and you're, you're starting to recognize that, and you start to regret. And then there's some shame, and then there's some realization that there are consequences. Right? For, for you kids in the room, like you realize mom and dad know what you did. Right? And you're about to start to negotiate, like, what, what do I do next? And it's, you know that feeling, that, that uh, just kind of freaking out. Well, in this story, we're going to see that happen. As we wrestle through this, we're going to see some of the questions that we tend to ask. Like, why does God allow this? I don't know how many of you have done this, but I, I, especially when I was younger, spent spent a bit of time asking God to remove these struggles, these temptations. Like, like if he would just take this certain appetite away, then, then I wouldn't have to deal with that. So why did he give it to me in the first place? So in this story, we're going to um, we'll look at Second Samuel 24. And I'll, I'll give you an overview of the story, and then we'll, we'll look back over some of the details. In the story, David does a census. He, he numbers the people, uh, but it's clear from the beginning of the story that this was not the right thing to do. Uh, Joab and the other leaders of the army confronted David when he told them to do this, and they said, David, this is not good. Do not do this thing. But David insisted. And as we go through the story, they, they number the people, and David is—he reaches that moment of conviction. He recognizes that, that he has sinned and he cries out to God. And he says, God, I've, I've done wickedness. Forgive me. But there's consequence for the sin. And God, God gives David three choices. And uh, in the end, 70,000 people die as a result of David's sin, which is, which is terrible. We're going we're gonna to look at this in a little more detail. But you know the feeling. Sometimes your sin affects the people around you. And that's the worst. And that's where David is as king. He has sinned, and now his people are paying the consequences, and he's crying out for mercy. So this series that we've been going through is is coming to understand this, this man after God's own heart. And as we look at this story, we will, we will get a more um, complete perspective on what was going on with David and what he saw in his God, and hopefully it, it will inform your perspective and, and deepen your knowledge of God today. So let's turn to verse 1, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. I'm going to start at the beginning, uh, and I'm going to warn you, this will actually, if you're already wrestling with some questions about why God allows us to sin or why he doesn't remove the temptation, uh, this will complicate it a little, uh, which is good because as we wrestle with this in our minds, that's part of how we will grow in our knowledge of God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So I already told you the story. This wasn't a good thing. David said, and now we look at the first verse of this story, and it tells us something that seems a little off. The anger of the Lord was against Israel, and it incited David to number the people. So now, not only are we wrestling with the question of why God allows sin or why he doesn't remove the temptation, but now we see right from the beginning of the story, God is right there in the middle of it. Seems a little out of place. Uh, let's look at another verse in Second or 1 Chronicles, chapter 21. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick overview. In In the Bible, we have... First and Second Samuel. First Samuel tells the story of, of King Saul's reign. Second Samuel of King David's reign. And then you have First and Second Kings, which tell the rest of the kings. So you have you have that collection in the history of Israel. Well, you, that's basically the historian's perspective. And then you have a, a more priestly recording of those stories, which so they're retold in First and Second Chronicles. So First and Second Chronicles is. Saul, and then David's reign, and then 2 Chronicles, the rest of the kings in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So in this version of the story, I'll turn over to Second Chronicles, or no, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It tells the same story of David's census, but it starts slightly differently, and I want you to notice the difference here. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number the people. You see the difference? Right, so, so there's, a, there's a, a, a significant difference between these two stories. If you read the rest of the chapter, they're the, the same story. Uh, for a skeptic, this causes many problems right? Who did it? God or Satan? Well, uh, I'm going to give you a moment to wrestle with that. Let's go to the next slide. The next slide. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. Uh, Okay, there we go. Perceived contradictions. Uh, as we wrestle with these things, I want you to be aware. This is, this is one of the common issues that skeptics or, or, or critics of Christianity will bring up. They'll go through Scripture and find these types of things and say, well, see, Scripture is flawed. You can't rely on it. Um, which is kind of silly that they're going to use Scripture to argue against Scripture. Like, the basis of their argument is that it's what Scripture says, but then their argument is that you can't rely on what Scripture says, which, anyway. Um, But they they perceive a contradiction, so they point this out to us and say, well, who did it? Did God do it or Satan do it? And, And one of the things that we should understand about these stories is that God revealed multiple perspectives on what was going on on purpose. So we fast forward to the New Testament, the most important time in history, we don't just get one version of the story, we get four witnesses, four Gospels. And those four witnesses have different perspectives on the same stories. And that's not to throw us off, it's not to cause us to be frustrated with contradictions. In fact, it does the opposite. It's it's more information for us. Kind of like if, if a police officer shows up at a car accident and he talks to people from four different perspectives and hears people who accurately describe what they saw. Well, having four is better than having one so we have more information so let's let's think about this story because in the old testament it's not just two many of the stories we have you have first and second samuel and first and second kings and then you have first and second chronicles retelling the same stories then we go to the prophets and you have the prophets oftentimes retelling the same stories and we get different perspectives which actually increases the amount of information and the perspective we have on what's going on historically so in this story we start with what seems like a contradiction. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a logical fallacy. It's, a, it's what we would call a fi- false dichotomy. Uh, and, and it's tricky when you ask the question that way. right? You, you, we present the question, or the skeptic would, well, did God do this or did Satan do this? As if there are only two options, and those two options are mutually exclusive. That's what we call a false dichotomy. There, there are... They aren't mutually exclusive, and there's more than two options. In fact, as we look farther into the story, we're going to see that David did this, and he took full responsibility for it, and he suffered the consequences. But we have God and Satan involved. I want you to picture this with me, because in this story, we, we tend to look at our, our human experience, and we see this— Right? We, we don't usually see what's going on in the spiritual realm. In this story, we get more insight into what was going on. But it's funny because as we retell stories, we tend to assume that what we see, the information we're given, is all the information that there is. As if in all of the other stories where Scripture doesn't mention God's involvement, God wasn't involved. You see the problem with that perspective. We know that God is involved, that that God knows everything, and that he is everywhere. Like Psalm 139 describes it, you, you can't go anywhere and leave the presence of God. In fact, in your life today, God is right with you. He's all around you, and he knows intricately every detail of what's going on in your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and he cares for you. And so when we read a story in scripture and it reveals to us that God was there and God was actively involved, sometimes we're, we're, we're thrown off by that. But we shouldn't be surprised. Right? That God is there and we should have known he was there. We shouldn't assume that just because a story doesn't mention that, that he's not. So we have, we have stories like um, Pharaoh, this is a really popular one Romans 9 brings it up but if you go back to the story of Exodus it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart it's a, it's a popular one to, to debate and it, it's the same false dichotomy it's well who did it because the story says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and then the story says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then the story and it goes back and forth actually throughout the story one hardening his heart and then the other and people say well that's a contradiction no it's not they were both actively involved it's kind of like when you face a temptation, you might, as you struggle with temptation, God, you, you might pray what, what Jesus said to pray. God, lead me not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? This, this, you know this prayer. We understand that God is here, and when I face temptation... That God is involved, and we cry out to our Father in heaven, and we say, God, lead me not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's also another piece of the story that, that again, we, we might on the front end be frustrated by, by two different perspectives and different pieces of information. It, Satan is there. But again, we, we, we were surprised that it mentions this. Except for you all know that, that Satan is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against... Right? We, you have this perspective. There's, there's much more going on than what we see right here. And so the, the story mentions that Satan was also involved. But again, that battle's always been going on. So we read stories about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart and this false dichotomy is you have to pick one or the other. No, Pharaoh made choices to harden his heart and yet God was actively and sovereignly involved in hardening Pharaoh's heart. You read the story of Job, right? And it gives you this perspective from the beginning. Job and his friends spend the entire book arguing about what in the world God was doing. But we as the reader, we get this insight because we see the first two chapters. God and Satan behind the scenes. Actually, the whole of the story is about that discussion. And you see Job and his friends and all of their confusion debating what was going on. But we get this insight that, yes, God was involved. And yes, Satan was involved. And that's not a contradiction. In fact, if you were to think back to the time earlier when I said, well, think of a time when you've sinned and you, you hit that moment of conviction. Well, how did that happen? Did did God allow me to be there? Well, yeah, God God wasn't removed. It's not that like God suddenly was absent from this worldly experience. Well, was Satan involved in tempting me? And... It's fully appropriate for me, in a moment of temptation, to cry out to God and say, God, deliver me from evil. Jesus taught us to pray that. It's fully appropriate for me to recognize, no, resist the devil. Right? It's it's in the Bible. It's also fully appropriate for me to recognize on a practical level that I should flee temptation. Like, with my own choices, with my feet, run away from a situation, because... I don't want to be tempted. And so, in this story, we, we can sometimes be thrown off at the beginning. God incited David, Satan moved David to do this. And then David is fully responsible. But, but I think, in your own experience, this is something that actually is quite relatable and, uh, and not all that confusing. Now, as we try to understand a little more of how God is interacting with us, because this is still a difficult thing, like, why would God lead me into temptation? And, and we think all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, why did, why did God create us this way? We're not going to answer all of those questions today, but I want to take a moment and look at what is described in Romans chapter 1. So, in Romans chapter 1, it describes what happens when we sin, And we get this picture in Romans 1. It mentions this idea three times in verses 24 and 26 and 28 that God gave them up. And it's describing this this direction that we go towards sin. And and it gives us a mental image of God holding us back. Because God in his mercy, in his grace, has always been holding us back from destruction and yet as we persist towards sin God allows us and so if you read the whole of Romans chapter 1 it describes a terrible scene of humans moving in the direction of sin and further and further and as it, as we continue taking steps down the path of sin it describes God's interaction with that that God is letting us choose this direction not because he wants us to sin but because we're persisting in it. And so God gives them up and God gives them up and then God gives them up and eventually they reach this place of destruction. And if you follow the the story of Romans the this the story of the gospel in Romans what you see is it's there when the person reaches that point where they know that they have no other options, that they cry out to God for mercy. Right, it was there that David, in this story, cried out for mercy. So let's back up to the story. God was there, and I hope that as I've been talking about all this, it's, it's increasing your understanding of, of God being here now. And when I sinned, God didn't remove himself from the story. He's still there. He's not afraid of being part of that story. And so God was there, and David calls Joab in, and Joab and the leaders of the army says, go number the people. And Joab says, no, David, this is a bad idea. And the leaders of the army said, no, David, That's wicked. And we don't know exactly what all was involved there, but it was clear in the story that David was doing something probably because of his pride and him wanting to, to reflect his own success in numbering the people. But they did. They went around and it tells the story. They numbered all the people. It took nine and a half months of them counting. And they finally come back and they did their job and David falls down because he's crushed with guilt. And it's that moment That moment of conviction, that moment of recognition that, well, you know that moment. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you know you did that, but why would you do that? And you're trying to figure out, how did I end up here? Why did I choose this? In verse 10. It says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. I have sinned in what I have done. I have. Have acted foolishly. This is an important point. As we as we study about David and as we come to understand why David is so revered, why he is called the man after God's own heart, if you read the story, you understand David was deeply flawed. Not just this story, where thousands and thousands of people die as a consequence of David's sin. But all of the previous stories, you read this the, about his children, <laughs> right? It's pretty ugly, children murdering each other, children trying to steal his kingdom. You, you read about him murdering his friend and then taking his friend's wife. There are terrible things in David's life. And yet, God says David was a man after his own heart. And I want you to understand, it wasn't because David was more righteous than everyone else. Because David did some terrible things. If we're going to understand why David was called a man after God's own heart, we see it in this story. David cried out to God for mercy. In fact, we see this throughout the Psalms. David repeatedly, in various situations, crying out to God for mercy. He says, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. David had an understanding of what we now know as the gospel, of, of the work of God on our behalf, because David had an understanding that there was nothing he could do to go back and undo what he had done. Right, As much as all of us would like time travel to go fix our stupidity, David had come to this place and recognized, no, there's nothing I can do. I have sinned. And now my only option, the only thing there is left for me is if God shows mercy to me. And it was with great clarity that David responded to his sin. And this is the difference The man after God's own heart that he displayed time and time again when he found himself in a place of great sin, of great wickedness, just like the rest of us, what he did is what we see here. He repented. He turned to God and he cried out. Because really, that's our only option. And so David finds himself sinning and takes responsibility for us and this is also an important point when we when we talk about mercy uh, sometimes we we get a little confused on what mercy is what it means as if mercy just means let's not talk about my flaws my, my sin no actually for david he demonstrates this here when he cried out for mercy it wasn't that he wasn't taking responsibility for his sin david took full responsibility for us and he didn't try and philosophically explain it away like oh god you let me do this He took full ownership of his own choices and he recognized there was nothing he could do. And so he looked to God and said, God, forgive me. This is the man after God's own heart displaying for us how we, as flawed beings, can walk with God. Not because we are righteous, but only because he's merciful. And so this is the example of David, the man after God's own heart. He cries out to God for mercy, and um, it'd be nice to end the story there, but it, it doesn't stop. What happens next is, uh, is God tells the prophet Gad to go and speak with David, and he says, you have three options, and they're all bad options. I remember um, a few months ago, I don't know why I did this, it just, like, just kind of happened, but um, you know how it is with parenting. One of my daughters punched one of my sons. And you might argue that the son was asking for it, right? He, he was pestering, he was poking, and everything else he did that led to that moment, but she punched him. And I had warned her multiple times, because it wasn't the first time. And so, it was time. And I said, you have two choices. You can either have a spanking from me, which is important, they always choose their mom in that. But I said, you can either have a spanking from me, or it was a Saturday, and Saturday means video games in our house, or you lose your privilege for the rest of the day. And she started crying. Because which is she going to choose? I felt terrible. She spent an hour in her room crying as I tried to coach her through this decision. <laughs> right? She could not choose one of those options. They were both terrible. So Gad comes to David and he says, you have three choices. And all three are terrible. First option. Three years of famine. Now understand famine. It's, it's kind of hard for us to comprehend this because we just go to the grocery store for everything. Uh, when famine hit in that area of the world, that means probably it stopped raining, crops stopped growing, and there's no food. And David understood this would mean thousands and thousands of people dying, slow, painful deaths as they would starve. This would mean him crying out to foreign nations, asking them to help. Option one's no good. Option two, being chased by your enemies for three months. Now David's been through this a couple times. And he understands what civil war looks like. Again, people are going to die. His kingdom will fall. He will leave Jerusalem and run for his life. Option two is no good. So, option three. Option three is three days of pestilence. And pestilence is, is kind of like a plague or a, a pandemic of sorts, but, uh, but a really bad kind, where, um, where it's clear that God was directly involved in what was happening. Three days of pestilence. Pestilence. Now again, I want you to notice David's response because again, we're, we're looking at this through the lens of, of, of David being a man after God's own heart. And I hope that as we see his response, we will learn from his perspective of who God is because it's three bad options, but make, David makes a clear choice between these three in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David had been around a while. This chapter, I I I didn't mention this earlier, it's the last chapter in 2 Samuel. So in in the history of the kings, we come to the end of David's reign in 2 Samuel, and this is it. This story, and you'll see where, we'll, we'll see the last verse of this chapter. It's the end of 2 Samuel's depiction of what happened under David's reign. He knew by now, men are wicked, and they don't show mercy. But what I want us to get from this is not that, but his perspective on God. Because in his perspective on God, David knew by now that God does show mercy. And so he's given three choices. One, he's going to have to depend on foreign nations for help in a famine. Two, well, obviously, there are human beings chasing him. And number three was a direct act of God. And David, when given these three bad choices, had distinct clarity. And this is what I want you to see in this. His perspective of God gave him clarity in this choice. He said, there's only one good option here. It's not a good option. But it's much better than the others because God is merciful. So I don't want to fall into the hands of men. Let me fall into the hands of God. And so it happened. He chooses option three. This pestilence comes, and, and it's hard to know if it happened in a matter of a few hours or a day, but, uh, but it wasn't. It was supposed to be three days. And as the angel of the Lord comes swooping through the land, 70,000 people fall dead. And David is in Jerusalem. He looks out, and he sees the angel of the Lord. And this is one of those times in Scripture where where the human gets to see the supernatural, right? Like, Like when Elijah points to the hillside for his servant, right? the eyes are open, and David sees the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword, and God says, go. In verse 17... It says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is probably the most painful part of the consequence of sin. It's something we typically don't consider when we think about a temptation in front of us is how bad the consequences actually will be. But one piece of that, that some of us tough guys like to think, is I can can take it. (laughs) But what we don't tend to recognize is that when I sin, it affects other people. And when I see the consequence of my sin, affecting my children or you think of someone like Achan right where where people are dying in the battle of Ai or you think all the way back to the beginning with Cain and Abel and I, I imagine that had to be one of the worst moments of Adam's life as a father. Adam knew his sin. He he'd experienced the garden. Now here he is, and he watched his son die. Right? He, He Adam knew he was fully responsible. Had he not sinned, that would have never happened right it's it's a whole different story when i think about how my sin and the reality is this is this is what happens in all sin it always goes far beyond our, what we imagine our reach could be but david is there is as king of israel and his influence is widespread and his sin the consequence of his sin is widespread and as 70,000 people are dying he cries out and says god not them That's hard to watch. It's hard to recognize, and and the the difficulty is we tend to not see it, right? We're we're mostly blind to the expanse of our influence, of, of the consequence of my choices. And so David followed God's direction and went outside of Jerusalem and there was a, a farmer by the name of Aruna, and he went to the farmer and said, "I need, I need your threshing floor." And Aruna said, "You can have it Here, have, have the bulls." Oh I, in, the, in the other telling of the story, it says that Aruna and his sons were out there by the threshing floor, and they looked over their shoulder and they saw this angel with the flaming sword. and so he's ready, like he says, "David, have whatever you need." and David Again, reveal something about his heart. In verse 24. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David understood something about sacrifice. It's actually within the meaning of the word. Sacrifice involves sacrificing value. And David knew this was his sin. And he needed to sacrifice something. So he said, I will not offer something that cost me nothing. And so he, he worked out and paid the value of the threshing floor and the oxen. And the other story it actually gives another number. And the understanding there is it was the value of the whole land in that area that David purchased. And then the final verse in the chapter. Now, again, as I read this, this is the final book or the final verse in the entire book of 2 Samuel in our account of David's reign. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So David chose... This plague, this pestilence. He chose option three specifically because this was going to come at the direct hand of God. And David knew God, he knew God to be merciful. And then the plague begins, and 70,000 people are dead. And David is crying out to God, and he's taking full responsibility and saying, God, let let me suffer, not them. And God sees this heart in David, this compassion for his people. And God said, go, build an altar. And there David builds this altar, and it says that the, the plague stopped. Right, 70,000 people, I want you to understand in, in the history of our nation, there, there have been some some really terrible situations, but 70,000 people is a big number. But what we're understanding here is it was going to be much worse. And the reality of my sin, it could be much worse. Right? I, I, I always... I'm getting way better than I deserve because God is merciful. And so David demonstrated in this story his perspective of our creator that God is merciful. And he knew when he sinned what repentance looked like. And he demonstrated this over and over. And this is the last story we have in Samuel about David's life. This is it. He repented. He turned to God and he cried out for mercy. And God re- God responded. But there's something more in this story. Because it's not... I don't want to leave you with with the focus just on the temporal consequences. Like the the things that I'm struggling through in my life as a a result of my own stupidity. There's something much bigger going on in this story. And it's the reason why 2 Samuel ends with this. David purchased this land and built an altar. Well, let's uh, let's skip over to Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, chapter three. It says, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed, on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan, another name for Aruna. What, What we should see in this story is something much more than the consequence for that specific sin. Because at that place, the temple would be built and every year, for a thousand years, thousands of sacrifices would be done to atone for the sins of the people. But we know that those sacrifices, those animals, never actually, their blood didn't actually pay the full price, what was required for those sins. And so a thousand years later, after a thousand years of sacrifices, the ultimate sacrifice would come. And this is what this story is pointing toward. This is why Second Samuel ends with this verse. Because God is inviting us not just to cry out for mercy in our temporal situation, not just the consequences that I face now, but God is inviting us to cry out for mercy eternally. That God has invited you and me to walk with him today. That he will declare us to be righteous and innocent before him because of the blood of his son that was shed for us. And so we we see in this story God's presence, and I hope that, that it's brought a level of understanding and perspective to you as you read that God was there. And as we understand God is here, and he's always here, and that's good news, that he is our loving Heavenly Father and he's merciful. And when I stray from that path, he's here right now he's here and he's reaching out with grace and mercy as he always has been and I can cry out for that and it's freely given so today I want to invite you to turn to God to repent to, to cry out to him because he is merciful and he is good and he is loving and he came down and suffered for us to cover over the consequence of sin so that that plague might be stopped. There'll be a prayer team over there if you want to pray. Uh, There's communion. uh, There's offering baskets. Um, I'm going to end in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you are here with us and that you are merciful. And Lord, I pray for each one here that we would come to a greater awareness of Your mercy, and that God, we would receive this invitation to turn to You and to receive mercy.
1: Thank you, pray in Jesus. Name. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for the reminder that even as much as we want to pretend like everything is good, all you have to do is ask someone this week. Walk up to someone and say, "Hey, how you doing?" The answer will be. Good. good, I'm doing good. That's not always true, right? And how, how foolish of it is is it for us to, to pretend like we're good towards God? He's omnipresent. He knows all things, right? And so because he's merciful, He he's the one that we can run to and be honest with. Man, how good is that? Don't forget that. Run to him today, all week. Uh, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, come see one of our staff team members. We'd love to see you. If you're interested in taking classes or hopping in at ABI, uh, stop by the, the info table. Uh, we don't officially end till 1230, so stick around, hang out, tear down some chairs. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, and may God bless you as you go about your day and this week, serving the Lord and knowing him more. See you next week.